Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. It's the passage we're going to look at tonight in consideration of our series on the miracles of Jesus. Luke 7, 11 to 17. The miracle we're looking at tonight is uh, quite different than the one we looked at last time from John chapter 2, the, the wedding, and you're going to notice how different it is. Let me read these verses to you. And by the way, they, I'm beginning at verse 11. The first 10 verses deal with another miracle that Jesus did regarding healing the centurion's servant. And now Luke puts in for us verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. How quickly information is disseminated and, and broadcast all over the world in a very quick way. When the basketball player Kobe Bryant perished in the helicopter accident a few weeks ago, probably within half an hour, all throughout the world, people knew about that. Now, back in the time of the New Testament, information didn't pass that quickly, but it did pass quickly. And by the time we reach the ministry of Jesus here in Luke chapter 7, he has become very, very well known. This stage in his public ministry, he is now has been performing miracles, and he's going to do another miracle here in our passage as well. We begin in verses 11 and 12 with a remarkable coincidence, if we can even use that word coincidence. Soon afterwards, that is soon after the miracle that he performed at Capernaum, the first 10 verses, came to this village of or a town called Nain. It's a few miles southeast of Nazareth. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, where that first miracle in chapter 10 was performed. Uh, Nain still admits, uh, exists today. It's spelled N-E-I-N, probably nine, something like that, perhaps. Tombs in the rocks have been found near the, near the village along the road. Apparently, the town had only one gate, down in verse 12, there is a reference to the gate of the town. And from what we know of the size of the town, probably that's all they have, just this one gate at the walled city of, of Nain. His disciples 
and a great crowd went with him. So you have the 12 disciples are with Jesus on this day, and a great crowd. As Jesus moved from town to town, people more and more began to attach themselves to him. Now, in little Sunday school paper drawings, you'll find maybe 10, 15, 20 people kind of around Jesus while he's teaching. Uh, This is really misleading. There had to have been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands at times, crowding Jesus. We see on television some well-known dignitary and there's a parade or something, and just hordes of people are gathered around that, that particular individual. So that's the way it was here, a great crowd of people. Um, his messages were different, so they were attracted to him for that way. His, his face seemed so earnest, so sympathetic as he dealt with people. His power was amazing. They had heard of the miracles or they had seen some of the miracles that Jesus had, had performed. So on this particular day, the people following Jesus had to be making a certain amount of noise and commotion as they moved along. But then another noise began to be heard at that time. Of course, we read down in verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So in verse 11, you have a great crowd following Jesus. In verse 12, you have a considerable crowd of people with this funeral uh, entourage leaving the gates of that city, the one gate, and coming forth. So the coincidence is rather remarkable that here comes the great crowd following Jesus, and here comes this great crowd with their noise, and indeed noise they made. A Jewish funeral procession uh, had flutes playing and cymbals crashing, and there was wailing and uh, chanting, all kinds of things going on. Uh, Think of something like in New Orleans when they have a moral service and they're The band is going down the street playing this music and the people are wailing and moaning and so on and so forth. That's the way it was back in Jesus' day. Luke then says here in verse uh, 12, I'm going to back up to the beginning of it, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, and right there we push the pause button. You've done that on your television, a DVR or whatever. You you want to see what happened. I'm telling you, stop it. For some reason to look at what it is, back up or whatever. So Luke wants us with that word behold, he said, hold on now, I want you to be ready for something very, very important to understand what's happening here. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, and here is this man being carried out through the gate, and he's described as the only son of his mother, and she was, she was a widow. Um, kind of interesting to envision this. One crowd moving kind of toward the city. We don't know what the brothers' plans were to go into this city or what. But here comes this crowd of people coming out of the city, and the two are beginning to converge together. In God's providence, for this particular miracle, it's worked out that this miracle is going to have many witnesses. You have the crowds of people, including the disciples of Jesus there. You have the crowds gathered around the, the memorial or the funeral procession. There's going to be a lot of people around. Quite a contrast with the miracle we saw last time in John chapter 2. Who witnessed that miracle? Well, there were a few servants, and uh, Jesus himself, and of course his disciples, and that was about it. It was done rather quietly. Jesus just willed that the water be changed to wine, and it was. This is going to be done a little differently. A man 
who had died. Down in verse 14, Jesus refers to him as a young man. How young? Late teenager, 20s, we do not know. Nevertheless, he was the only son of this particular woman who now was a, was a widow. He was being carried out. The Jews buried their dead outside of the city, if that's where the death had occurred, because to have a burial inside would be considered defilement, religious defilement. So that it would be carried out of the city. This lady now is now a widow, his mother, and she's all alone in the world. Obviously, she has no husband. She turned a widow. And this was her only son, verse, uh, four, uh, verse 12. The only son of this particular woman. Um, she's now alone in the world. No male, M-A-L-E, no male support. Um, her protection is gone. There were few openings in that day for a woman to get a job. Now, you know, you look at the job wanted or go down to McDonald's or something, and probably people can find some kind of a job somewhere, but not so back in the first century. She was lonely, she was sorrowful, and the family tree had ended. Now, she did have the support of her friends. A considerable crowd was with her, so give them credit for standing by her, even today, uh, with a memorial service of any kind. It's interesting to see how many people show up for that. Not just relatives, but friends, fellow workers, whoever it might be. And so that's what we have here. So here's this remarkable coincidence, then, of these two crowds of people kind of merging together. Now, in verses 13 through 15, we have a very compassionate act on the part of Jesus. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, and in the Greek, the prefix appears, the Lord. If it's not there, the word Lord refers to the Lord God Jehovah. When Luke uses it, and Luke is very unique with this, it always refers to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the term used here is preparing the way for Christ to meet the merciless enemy of death. So it's very certainly fitting here. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the key words in that parable is that the Samaritan had compassion on the poor guy that was beat by the side of the road. Compassion is a very good word. I remember an article that appeared in some publication many, many years ago, and the title of the article was Compassion, Can We Get It Back? And I have to look at my own life. Probably you have to look at your life. And I have to admit to myself, I've not always been the most compassionate person. I've shown interest. I've tried to be helpful. But I must admit, I don't know how often I've really been filled with compassion for a person in need. But something we need to all work on there when we see people in need. This was compassion, not pity, not uh, just a desire to help. But uh, Jesus put it all together. Here's this poor lady. She's just lost her son. Uh, Her friends are grieving with her. Uh, This is a terrible thing. And remember, Jesus and his humanity truly felt this in a very human way. He comes undoubtedly to the mother to speak these first words. And he said to her, do not weep. That's in the present imperative tense of the Greek, meaning do not keep weeping. Or to put it another way, don't keep crying or stop your constant crying. Now, uh, what a strange thing to say 
to this lady when weeping was the very thing you would expect that she would be doing. In Jewish things like the Jewish funeral processions, professional wailers were found and paid. We need to come and wail for this person at this service. And so they'd be out there wailing away. Maybe some of you remember when the Kumin, Kumun, the present dictator of North Korea, when his father died. And you could just tell these people on the side had been hired or told, you better wail. And so when this body comes by, you're all these poor North Koreans who've been mistreated by this guy. Wailing. Well, that's what they were hired to do for Jewish weddings. Uh, Jewish uh, funeral proceedings, maybe weddings too, huh? <laughs> oh, my, my son, is only son, my only daughter's getting married. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> but I misspoke. At funeral services, they, they definitely did that. Um, but that, if anyone should be weeping that day, it should have been that mother. I mean, shouldn't Jesus at least permit her to cry? But how often have we said to somebody, and they're, they're, they're crying, and so, oh, don't, don't, don't cry, don't cry. Whereas professional counselors, they say one of the best things for you in a situation like that is to let it out. <laughs> don't hold back. Let the tears flow, especially in a moment of a death. And here's Jesus saying, don't, don't weep, don't cry. Well, of course, what Jesus says here is quite different than simply stop your, your crying. Often sympathy is faked not genuine. But Jesus could say this because otherwise his words would ring hollow. There must be some reason why he's saying that. Well, he's preparing her for what he is about to do. Another way to put it this way. Do not weep. Don't keep crying because something very comforting is going to happen to you in just a few moments. Now, he doesn't say that. But I think that's the reason Jesus said, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer. Now, this was not a Budweiser can. It's not that kind of beer. This is a B-I-E-R, a litter, a frame on which the body was placed in a shroud. They didn't have closed coffins. It was open, so just something like a stretcher to put the body on wrapped in a shroud or a sheet of some kind. And he went up and, and touched it. Now, the Jews just didn't do things like that. In the ninth chap, 19th chapter of Numbers, for example, uh, you experience ritual defilement by touching anything having to do with a, a dead body, especially the, the uh, thing that's carrying the body here. Well, what do we read next? Touch the beer, and the bearers stood still. It's been surmised that one reason they all of a sudden stopped because, because he had defiled himself. Oh, do you see what Jesus the rabbi did? Oh, and they were shocked. But I think it's more likely that they sensed that something unusual was about to happen. Undoubtedly, they were aware of Jesus. His name had become well-known, as I mentioned earlier. He was becoming quite popular. Crowds of people were following him. And so when he came up and touched that, they automatically just stopped, if nothing more than simply his authoritative stance or whatever it was that they, they picked up. Having done that, he says, Young man, 
I say to you, arise. Christ speaks as the one who is the prince of life. He's the one who has the keys of death and the grave. What Jesus says here is kind of a prelude to what Peter said in Acts chapter 3 to the man who could not walk. Silver, I don't have. Gold, I don't have. But I tell you what, I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that kind of is a mirror, to some extent, of what Jesus does here, although the circumstances were quite, quite different. Notice that Jesus gives this command with no hesitation, no incantation. He doesn't start mumbling some kind of words and spread his hands over it. He just goes up, touches the stretcher, and then he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. I found it interesting that the Greek term here for sitting up is a medical term for patience when the doctor or the nurse says, I think, why don't you try to sit up now from your bed? Perhaps you've been in a situation, you yourself, or you've been there when the nurse or the doctor will say, let's see if we can help you up. You need to sit up. It's so comfortable laying down here. Kind of help me up. And that's the term that's being, being used here. Now notice what happens when Jesus said this. The dead man sat up and began to speak. No hesitation. Suddenly this young man who is dead, suddenly is full of life. He's not, it's not that Jesus said, now check him out. He might, is he breathing a little bit there? Yeah, I think I hear something. It wasn't like that. Full, full miracle, just like that. He sat up and began to speak. No faint breathing, no struggling to a sitting position. Raised to full health. And then a nice little touch here. At the end of verse 15, and Jesus gave him to his mother. What a moment that was for her. Suddenly, her son is back to life. A restrained miracle, isn't it? He just spoke. It was done. In that sense, it's like the miracle in Cana, in the way that when the water turned to wine. Not a big thing, outwardly. Jesus just said, young man, rise up. And he did. Now, Bible critics say that this man was only in a lethargic sleep. Now, it's true that when we sleep, there is a relative interruption of, of our bodies and our spirits, our bodies and our souls. We're in a kind of a different realm there, and um, a voice needs to wake us up. You know what I can still do after all these years? I can close my eyes, and I can say, I'm going to do it in just a moment, I can say my first name, and a little shudder goes through me, <laughs> just a little bit. And this was what the voice was. Calvin, mm-hmm. my mother's voice saying, time to get up and get ready to go to school. And I can still say, Calvin, ooh. I could just remember those days. <laughs> I didn't want to get up. And it took a while to be stirred out of my sleep there. 
So Bible critics, they, they say, well, this is what happened. The, the guy was just in a deep slumber, and Jesus said that, and it caused him to get back into the real life here. A scholar named Zeller, I don't know who he was, I found this quotation someplace, in order to admit it was only sleep here, it must be considered that within the short period embraced by the evangelical and apostolic history, there took, there took place five times, three times in the Gospels, twice in the Acts, the same circumstance, the same remarkable chance of a lethargy situation, which though unperceived by those who were engaged about the dead, yields to the first word of the divine messenger and gives rise to a belief in a real resurrection. In other words, you have three times in the gospel accounts, twice in Acts, where this kind of thing happens. In each one, the, the idea is the guy's dead. And to say that he's only sleeping, that's rather strange that it's somehow passed into a miracle of life from the dead, unless the person was really dead. This one is Luke's uh, only, the only reference here to this miracle is by Luke that we're looking at tonight. Um, the, the restorations to life were, were this one, the rising of Jairus' daughter, and of course the great one, the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, they're unique. Nothing similar has ever happened before or is going to happen or be recorded in Scripture during this period of Christ's early ministry. Now, our last two verses of our text tonight gives the significant response. And this is important. We could stop at that point and say, well, isn't, isn't that remarkable? Isn't that neat how Jesus did that? Certainly it shows his power and the fact that he was the Messiah. But it's good that Luke adds verses 16 and 17 here. Verse 16, fear seized them all. Put yourself in the position of those people who saw that. And here's this dead man that they're ready to take off to and be buried. Wow, he's alive. What's going on here? And they glorified God. And they glorified God. Notice it doesn't say they glorified Jesus. They underestimated even here his majesty and his deity. But they gave glory to God anyway. God has done some, Jehovah's God done some wonderful miracle here. Um, a great prophet has arisen among us. Same word arisen here as used back at the end of verse 14. Young man, I say to you, arise. And here a great prophet has arisen among us. Rather fitting in this spiritually dark place that Israel was in those days that from them has come this great prophet. He has arisen from their dead situation, dead in sin and uh, despair. Great prophet has arisen. They glorify God. And then they said, God has visited his people. Back in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 68 in Mary's song, she says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And there, of course, Mary was talking about the fact that the Messiah was going to be born in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that was the initial part of the visit. So indeed, they are correct. God has visited his people, even though they did not accept him at the, as the Messiah. At least most of them did not. 
A better translation might be, God has come to look after his people. That's a nice idea, to look after his people. He has shown his concern for them. He has come to help and rescue them, I think is the idea there. And then verse 17. This is one of those verses that we find in the gospel accounts, we find in in other narratives in the scripture, where it it says something that seemingly, well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Do we need to spend any time on that verse? But I think it's important. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It spread through the whole of Judea, but wasn't Nain and Galilee. Remember I told you just rather close to Nazareth and Capernaum up to the north, and here's this reference to Judea, and Bible critics have said, well, Luke just placed the city of Nain in Judea. Not quite. The term means that it went out, it spread as far as Judea and all the surrounding country. I said earlier that things don't, news is not passed as quickly in those days as in our day. But nevertheless, word gets around, people traveling, visiting other people, and they say, boy, you should have seen what happened. Or did you hear what happened up in Nain? Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, performed the miracle, brought the dead back alive again. So word was spreading out to Judea, through the whole area of what we know as Palestine, or Israel, if you prefer that term. Um, so this is something that spread. Word was getting around. Jesus was becoming well-known. Jesus was becoming popular. And so this is part of Jesus' plan to not quite overtly announce, I am the Messiah, and prepare to go to the cross. Not yet. His time had not yet come. Nevertheless, he is beginning to build up a following. And in the midst of this crowd, remember who's there the 12 disciples. Jesus is always working with the 12 disciples. Now we know what happened to Judas, but apart from Judas, we know the other 11 were, their faith was in Jesus, they they claimed he was the Messiah, they were trusting in him, but it was a very weak faith, a weak trust, and Jesus is trying to build them along and, and take them along. So as he performs these miracles, he's training them to have confidence and trust in him. Now I have, in closing here, three applications Uh, of this particular miracle that Jesus did. Uh, Application number one has to do with witness. Witness. Verse 17 is not only a connecting link with what we just looked at, but what is going to follow. What does verse 17 say? This report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, what he is, Luke is about to tell us in verses 18 through 22 is that it not only went through Galilee and Judea and the region beyond, it reached in, even into a dungeon east of the Dead Sea. And who's in that dungeon east of the Dead Sea? John the Baptist. And John was having some doubts. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported, connect that with the word report, verse 17, Disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one that's to come, or shall we look for another? 
At this moment, John is probably thinking to himself, you know, I, I thought Jesus was the Messiah, but I'm beginning to wonder here. Why, why am I sitting in this dungeon, for one thing? And uh, I'm not quite sure who he is. And so he sent the message back to Jesus. John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus lists some of the things he had done, and one of the things he mentions was that the dead are raised up. And that was taken back to John to encourage him to realize that indeed Jesus was the Messiah. So that witness of what had happened went all the way through this area out to John the Baptist in this dungeon east of the Dead Sea. And uh, ever since then, in a sense, this report has been spreading. As the Bible's been taught uh, down through the centuries to our day, to tonight, <laughs> this report is still out there of the raising of the widow's son here in name, and of course that's part of our responsibility as a church, is to be a witness, to set forth a certain uh, message, uh, the message of the gospel, the message that salvation is by, if by faith in Christ alone, received by faith alone, that's the message we need to get out, as well as a witness to the glory of God, and so on and so forth. So that kind of began, you might say, right here, at least this was an important step as this message about Jesus began to Spread. A second application is the word comfort. Comfort. Some of us, if the Lord does not uh, to return first, some of us may have a very quick death, uh, some kind of, an automobile accident, for example. Um, other of us may linger for a while. And as I think about that myself, I, I ask the Lord to give me the strength and the grace I need at that time to be a good witness to him, to not fear death. I'm not necessarily going to like the dying process, but to give me that constant trust in him as my shepherd who will guide me safely through. Um, and so we look at a passage like this, and we realize and are reminded that Jesus, our master, is stronger than the grim foe of death. He has the power over the invisible spirit world. He is the victor over death, the reuniter of loved ones, our faithful high priest who has sent his spirit as the great comforter of our souls. And so we see the comfort here that was brought to this mother through what Jesus did as a type of the kind of comfort that later Jesus by his spirit would bring to his people down through the years even into our lives, we who are believers in Christ. And then a final application, uh, I have the word life here. This young man that was raised from the dead is a picture, of course, of the sinner brought from the deadness of his sin to eternal life restored by Jesus. Every time there is a true conversion, whether it happens at a very young age, when the child uh, is given the new birth, the seed of the new birth is planted in the child, and then the child, as that child grows, begins to realize there's never been a day when I haven't been aware of my sin and that Jesus is the Savior. Uh, it could be begin there. It might happen later in life. But whatever it is, that new life has to be planted in the sinner to bring them back to life. Jesus himself had to descend into the grave and die and then be raised from the dead. It was Jesus and said this in John 5.25. Truly, truly, I say unto you, 
An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In a sense, that began in Jesus' life, ministry, as he raised people from the dead, literally, as he touched hearts and lives, people's lives were changed, and it continues right down until the final great day of the final resurrection. So this should be a comfort to us to know we read that and say, if Jesus did that to that young man, I believe he's done that to me in my life. I praise him for that. And my prayer is that others might hear that good message and likewise be delivered from their dead, simple predicament. Let's pray. Our Father, those of us here in this room who have been raised to new life through faith in Christ, we thank you that we have that life, that the Spirit dwells within us, that you have visited us, you have set your love upon us. We did not deserve it, but in your grace you have chosen us to belong to you. Thank you for that and pray that as we go forth this night we might remember that you are always with your people, that you are with us in life or death. We are yours and you will guide us safely into our heavenly home where there is no more night. Dismiss us with your blessing and we look forward to being with one another in the next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.